Hi guys, I'm your host, Wesley Rashid. Thanks for tuning in to the Tech Startup Collective. So in this podcast, we explore some of the insider tips and some of the finest talking points from today's brightest tech entrepreneurs. Today, we have the founder of Beeline, Tom Putnam. Beeline builds smart navigation devices for cyclists with coverage across the UK. Now, according to Crunchbase, they've raised just over 700k in equity crowdfunding, and they're fresh off the back for a 500k round with Kickstarter. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and the journey that this tech firm is on. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks very much, Wes. Good to have you. Great stuff. So before we talk about the company, it's like customary to get to know you and your background more. So maybe you can walk us through what you've done in the past and who you've worked for. Going back to uni, I did aerospace engineering there. So uh, technically rocket science and then packed that in pretty quickly, unfortunately. Um, so I went straight into the corporate world. I worked for McKinsey for a couple of years um, and that's where I met my co-founder, Mark. So we became good mates there. I was never going to be a life uh, consultant. Like It was interesting, but not for me for life. I wanted to do something a bit more entrepreneurial. And I've also always had a bit of a passion for Africa. So when the opportunity came to work for Rocket Internet out in Kenya, I did that for a couple of years. And I kind of saw that as a stepping stone of you know going towards starting my own thing, basically starting someone else's thing with their money and their risk and learning from that. And then uh, I was ready to come home from that. Mark was ready to leave McKinsey as well. That's when we started Beeline together. Great stuff. So let's talk about your role as co-founder of Beeline. Yeah. When did you found Beeline to begin with? Well, we formed the company in April 2015, uh, which was almost exactly when I came back from Kenya. We'd been kind of working on little prototypes and playing with ideas for a few months before that. That's when it really kicked off in earnest. Oh, and what gave you the idea? What gave you the push and the drive to then really properly start this business up? The idea came from just Mark and myself getting really frustrated riding around London or around wherever we were on bikes and getting lost. Because what everybody always does is kind of look at your phone, Google Maps, try and remember a route, put it back in your pocket, ride off, quite quickly get lost, forget it, try and ride along with one hand or fumble it in the traffic lights, put it back in your pocket, end up dropping your phone, nearly getting run over. And we just had enough of that. So we thought we'd set this up. And to begin with, it was literally just going to be a little hobby idea. We thought about making a nice little compass for a bike and then got a bit carried away and thought, couldn't that be smarter if it pointed to where you last looked for in Google Maps? And then, you know, now it does all kinds of full routing. That was where the idea came from. We were also good mates from our previous work and both liked the idea of making a physical product. You know, perhaps if we'd known how much was going to go into that at the time, it might have scared us off. But naively, we thought that would be easier back then. Um, so went for it. Also, just from a personal point of view, I'd thought about a couple of ideas before, nearly done things a couple of times, and I'd always come up with some excuse to not do it. I remember thinking to myself at the time, I have to do this one, because if I give myself an excuse and don't do it, then I think I just have to resign myself to being one of those people who always goes, oh, I had that idea. Oh, they nicked it, but you know, I was never going to actually do it. So that kind of gave me a bit of an impetus to follow through. Great. So can you give us some insight into your day-to-day work life as a founder? To be honest, I often forget what I've done in a day because it's so so varied and often not very exciting. Um, any given day might involve filtering through emails for the important stuff from all the nonsense that we get of inbound stuff, sorting out banking and accounting, filing stuff with HMRC, all the kind of admin that when you work for a bigger company, there are people who do that full time, but I think I am the company secretary. But then, you know, really exciting stuff like going and having a chat with 
Uber, for example, about what are they looking at the future of transport and how can we help that? Um, and then incorporating that back into um, what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. I mean, a lot of it, of course, is we now have a team of seven. So a lot of it is working with that team and making sure that everybody else in the team can do what they need to be doing. Frankly, I'm the generalist here who kind of keeps the wheels moving. And my job really is to free everybody else up to do what they are specialists in. Great. And what part of you know your role is reinforcing the mission, what you're trying to set out to achieve? So I think that there's a lot of day-to-day strategic stuff. And this is what Mark and I spend a lot of our time talking about is kind of, is what we are working on on a day-to-day basis right now. What is that driving towards long-term, you know, strategically about where we want to be to make sure that we are laser focused about like what happens on a given day is pushing towards where we want to be in a year's time, five years time. Not that we're just like picking up and running with whatever fell on our plates that day. So there's that, you know, as I said, making sure that the team is free to do all of their bits and bobs because that's really important to make sure we can reach that end goal. And I think doing a lot of the thinking and trying to set up what might happen in the very long term. So for example, a lot of what's happening at the moment is in the VC world and tech world is all this bike share stuff and transport in cities changing. Like that is a far stretch from what we're doing in terms of the product we sell on a day-to-day basis now. It's really important for us to think about how we fit into that going you know, in several years time from now. Do you love what you do? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Any regrets? Um, no, genuinely not. No, no. I'm delighted that I did this. I mean, it's, it is, I would say that compared to a normal job, it's just a much more of a roller coaster. Like the highs are much higher because you're so much, so invested in it. And the lows are a lot lower because it's, you know, when it's what you've been working on the last three years and things aren't going so well, it's pretty terrifying. But, uh, I'd much rather have it that way than just kind of flatlining all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Okay, let's talk about Beeline. Sure. For the listeners, can you describe what the company does and the problem that it's trying to solve in your own words? Yeah, absolutely. So we try and help people have better journeys on bikes and now motorbikes and perhaps other things in future. So the cycling product is a little device that clips onto your handlebars. Uh, The motorbike version is similar, twist locks onto our handlebars. And then that sits there, really simple device. You enter your destination into our app or you can find routes and different journeys on there. They link up, you then put your phone in your pocket and this device guides you along your route. Um, it also does things like it tracks you, um, shows you your speed or kind of bike computer stuff, but it's fundamentally a, a connected navigation device for bikes and motorbikes. So if I'm a consumer, if I'm a customer, what should I expect from the product and you know, how would it work as a user? So fundamentally what you should expect is to be able to get from one place to another really easily. <laughs> um, that is, it navigates you and gets you there. But what sets it apart from other forms of navigation, so Google Maps, for example, or Garmin's, things like that, is just the, the simplicity and the intuitiveness of it. Setting up a route, it's through your phone. It's as easy as looking for something in Google Maps. You know, it probably takes you 10, 20 seconds to do that. And then following this device is just really, really intuitive. So we have our own navigation interface. So it doesn't say turn left on Charlotte Street in 100 meters. It has a big arrow that you follow at all times. So you just kind of flow along through the streets. And it, what we're trying to achieve is for you to almost effortlessly feel like you know where you're going at all times, rather than feel like you're being navigated. Yeah. When do you bring the product to market? When was it in stockists? Um, so it was first shipped out to customers and available to buy immediately in January 2017. What's the feedback been like since? And there, are there any learnings from since you kind of brought it to market? Yeah, I mean, the, the feedback has generally been great. It's got better and better as we've kept developing the product. By virtue of the fact that it's a connected product, 
we can update the software on the device. And obviously, we can do app updates very regularly, um, which means that we can take feedback from people and that can be incorporated into the next release and make the product better. To be honest, when we first released it, there were lots of niggles and bugs in there that we had to iron out that were just problems that needed to be solved. But then we got through that and we were in the stage where we could make it better and better. So an example is integration with Strava for people who ride bikes because loads of cyclists love that. A big one has been giving it full route navigation. So at the start, it was this really free form of navigation that's effectively as the crow flies. Just point you at your end destination, give you the freedom to pick your own route, um, which I thoroughly encourage everybody to try. And a city is lovely, but it takes a bit of a leap of faith. If you need to be at a meeting at exactly 10 a.m., that might not be the best way to do it. So we've taken that feedback on board and now it does full route guidance, you know, but all with the same devices that people bought maybe two years ago. That's all been updated remotely. So they get all those. So that's why the feedback gets better and better as we keep on kind of ticking the boxes for those people by filling in those needs. Great stuff. Just remind me what um, stockists are you in at the moment? Maybe if you can name some. Obviously our own website and we also sell on Amazon. Then we're in stock in Evans Cycles, Halfords, Wiggle, Harrods and Selfridges and some pop-up stores in there. And we're currently trying to push out into many more stores as well. Maybe you could talk about how you actually brought the product to market. Uh, yeah, we were quite... I guess quite organic at the beginning. So the the stuff on our own website and Amazon has been, it's easy to make those exist. You don't have to negotiate with people and make it happen. But then it's all about how you tell the story about the product and how you sell it on those. Um, so we're always iterating on that. The kind of retail distribution stuff to begin with was a bit haphazard, I suppose. We, we just went off to kind of one or two stores or people who came to us and we'd signed deals on that. And now we are getting much more kind of militant about it and organized. So we now have people in the team who are specifically spending a lot of their time going out looking for retailers and distributors to sell our product on our behalf because selling through Wiggle, Halfords and Evan Cycles is easy enough because they're big and there's only three people you have to deal with. But there are thousands of bike shops around the world and we want to be stocked in all of those. We can't deal with them all individually, so we need to go out and find the, the middlemen who can um, help us make that happen. Right. So, so currently you've got UK coverage. Are there any plans to expand into other markets? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we've got UK coverage at the moment, but we, well, partial UK coverage. We still want to be in all those hundreds of bike shops. Right. But we also work with a distributor in Japan. Um, we're in one or two stores in the US and we are talking to lots and lots of distributors at the moment about getting coverage right across Europe and getting into many more stores in the US as well. Perhaps you can talk to us about your team and what skills they bring to the table. So starting off with uh, myself and Mark, we are potentially slightly unconventional in that we have almost exactly the same skill sets. Um, so we both come <laughs> from business strategy consulting backgrounds, which lots of people tell you is a terrible idea because you know, ideally we want one person who's technical and one person who's running the business side of things. But it actually works really well because we, within that we have different skills and come to it from different approach. Mark is very good at kind of organizing and make sure that everything is, is on track. I just, you know, go around dreaming about things and trying to think about what happens in five years time and being very optimistic um, about <laughs> everything. It actually works out really well. Then otherwise in the team, we have another Mark who is our CTO and he's an absolutely brilliant developer. He comes from a background of both building systems in big banks. So he's got the kind of big corporate systems approach to stuff, but also used to work in a smaller startup. So he's got that kind of like roll your hands up and roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty approach. And then we have Kate and Sam, 
who work on managing our community to make sure all our customers are very happy and being effectively being the face of the company in terms of all the content and emails and social media and stuff we put out. And they are now also spending a lot of their time focusing on selling the products to these distributors to get in touch with all these people across Europe. Another Sam who uh, is our designer, so does everything from designing what the app looks like through to actual physical hardware. And then we've got Victor, who's our marketing guy. So everything to do with like email marketing, social media marketing, optimizing the website for conversion, all that sort of stuff. So dialing back to when you first formed the company, there was yourself and Mark. Yeah. And now you've got a team of seven. Yeah. So just conscious of that, um, how do you maintain the company culture whilst you're growing? What's your approach to that? I mean, I think that we're still small enough at the moment that Mark and my sort of personalities, vision, whatever, rub off on, on everything we do. I mean, like we're in our office now for the listeners and it is a one small room. And so there's, uh, <laughs> there's no real opportunity for anyone to avoid us. But it's also been about who we've hired and we've done it quite slowly and deliberately. And I've got people who are very much on board with the vision are very excited about what we're doing rather than just being functional experts. So, for example, our CTO, Mark's idea of a fun Friday night is to go and ride 200 miles on his bike. Like Sam, who's our designer, um, was one of our original Kickstarter backers. So there are people who are very much like have the same mentality and share our vision for what we want to do, and which is really helpful because it just reinforces that culture rather than it being something that we've got to battle against to keep in place. That makes sense. I mean... I guess when you're hiring talent, those things are so important and to embody those values and that mindset, I think is super important for a growing startup. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I think helps is that we spend more time than people might think is reasonable or rational when you've got so much to do talking about what we stand for and what we're trying to do in the long term with the whole team. That isn't something that Mark and I talk about behind closed doors and then try and enforce on everybody. We're always having a lively debate about what that should be. Um, you know, we always break for lunch and all eat together and like over those sort of times we talk about who who we're trying to address like what is our vision for the future what are the things that we stand for as a company that makes sense okay so what about future growth how are you going to keep ahead of the game <laughs> always a challenge eh? well as a consumer hardware company the most obvious thing there is just selling more of it so that's what all everything we're trying to do with retail and distribution and growing our um, marketing budget and you know, getting more people to come to the website and Amazon to buy it. It's all about just getting more and more of them out there. But it's also about making the products better and better and also to address more people. So we started with bicycle products. We've just launched the motorcycle products on Kickstarter, which you've referred to at the start. That obviously means we are addressing many, many more people. And it's got two markets there. But then taking those and building on the tech to make that something that is continually improving and that the product never stands still. So, you know, it talks about the fact that we've done all the kind of integration with Strava and root mode, all that kind of stuff. That's just something we're always, always working on, always trying to get better. Um, something that is exciting for us is looking at the whole motorcycle and bicycle manufacturers. How can we actually work with them? Because we can build integration into the systems at the point where they're, they're sold. And also thinking about how, like this future of transport is changing and how bikes are becoming part of that and how can we shape our product and, and, and get ourselves involved in that. Did you find yourself actually flipping into that market quite easily? Was that or the motorcycle yeah. market? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. From day one, we'd always had people saying, when we were selling the bicycle one, people always asking us, can I use this on a motorbike? 
to which to begin with the answer was actually no because there's there was a reason you couldn't and then we we fixed that and you could use it on a motorbike but then we thought it's still not optimized for motorcycling we've got so many people asking for it and actually it's not going to take us a huge amount of changes to to make it work right let's do this like the success of the kickstarter campaign has proven that it's a really strong market for us lots of people out there who are looking for something clearly currently underserved and we've like dropped into a a niche there for them that that solves a real problem that's awesome okay moving on let's let's talk about the fundraising because i did um, mention it at the top of the podcast so crunchbase has you having raised just over 700k in equity crowdfunding and you're fresh off the back of the kickstarter's campaign so maybe you could talk to us about how it all went yeah, sure. Just to split those apart, the um, equity crowdfunding or equity funding is quite different from the Kickstarter funding because Kickstarter is people buying products up front, um, whereas the equity crowdfunding or equity funding is people buying equity in the company, obviously. So equity stuff has been interesting. The crunch base is a, it's a little bit sneaky, but it says that we're 700k of equity crowdfunding because actually a lot of that has come from angel investors who are larger, bigger ticket Invested, but it's all kind of been reflected through crowdfunding platforms, right. which is, I think if there's one lesson I'd take away for equity crowdfunding is that you can't just go onto one of those platforms cold, you know, with, with nothing in the pot and expect the money to just come in. It takes a lot of running around getting those first anchor investors. You know, I would always recommend going with at least 50% confirmed from people. And that's what has made it work for us in the past. Um, so we did 500K back in 2000 and. 16 uh, and then we did a further 200k last year was that that was through cedars was it yeah through yeah. cedars yeah. yeah yeah but all that 500k for example about 350k came from just four different individuals or funds um, and then the rest came from genuine crowdfunding but it was all reflected through the cedars campaign but it, i think we're in a great place because it's a really simple consumer product um, it's very easy for people to understand. So it's easy for people to get excited about it and want to back that. Um, whereas if you're doing some kind of high-tech, fintech product that nobody can, who hasn't got a degree in that can understand it, can understand, then it's a bit harder to get people excited and get them to back it. So we're fortunate from that point of view. I mean, the flip side of it is that if you're doing some deep tech, fintech product, it's probably easy to get VCs to back you. Um, so, you know, kind of works both ways. With the Kickstarter stuff, so we've now done two Kickstarter campaigns. The first one for the bicycle one was in 2015 and we raised 150K through that. And then we've just done half a million on the motorcycle one. And for that, you're selling a product, you're not selling an investment. Um, so it's all about getting people super excited about that, you know, making a great video that sells the product, making sure it's priced correctly, showing the personality behind the people who are doing it, doing all the right kind of, you know, trying to get yourselves into PR and doing your own marketing and things like that. It's a, it's effectively a sales platform. So it's a big and very intense uh, sales job because it's only 30 days long. Cool. Was, it, was 500k your initial target? No, uh, we did it in US dollars. So that 500k was just under 700k dollars. Yeah. And our initial target was $50,000. So we were well over a thousand percent of uh, that by the close. We were kind of run away. You judged that, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, we always hoped we'd get through that 50k, but um, we were, um, yeah, we were blown away by the the success of it. And it's testament to that market and just not being served at the moment. I mean, for example, if you're a motorcyclist and you want a navigation device, pre beeline like a garmin or a tom tom one would cost you about five or seven hundred quid 
Um, right. Yeah. For just a like, you know, box standard GPS for a motorbike. So us selling something for, when we were selling on Kickstarter for 100, it'll be 150 in retail and it launches is, you know, it kind of makes it a no brainer. Tom, you seem like um, a pretty relaxed guy, pretty chilled yeah. out. No um, shoes on. Yeah, yeah no shoes on. I mean, we're <laughs> in your office now wearing shorts and, you know, it's pretty warm outside. Um, but were there any extremely stressful moments whilst you're going through that process of fundraising? Fundraising is always stressful because it's, um, I mean, it is basically a series of rejections. Eventually having somebody um, who sees your vision and shares what you're, you're going for and, 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 and backing you. But, you know, I think it's probably pretty normal in any startup fundraise that if you talk to a hundred people, it's the hundredth one that says yes. And you've had to go through 99 times of people telling you they think your idea is crap and that it's not going to go anywhere. And so you've got to be pretty thick skinned. Um, that's not nice at all. Um, and all the time when you're talking to those 99 people, the money's running out and it's becoming more and more urgent that you actually do raise the money. That's not much fun. Um, it's you know, probably one of my least favorite things about running a startup is the fundraising bit. Other things that have been stressful is, I mean, we we sell a consumer hardware product, which is manufactured in China. And we came to this with no manufacturing background at all. So we had to go through that whole incredible learning process um, of working out how to get these things made. And definitely times in that when it was stressful. Uh, things when suddenly things were a lot more expensive than we thought, all the things were delayed, couldn't get things to work. That was all pretty difficult. But you know, you come out the other side and you've learned so much. I think we we often forget how much we've learned, but we are fairly expert in getting electronics manufactured in China these days, which we definitely wouldn't have called ourselves three years ago. So are there any three takeaways that you can think of? You know, little snippets of little advice that you could um, provide the audience? I think one thing is always taking the time to kind of look at the bigger picture and not get too stuck in the weeds. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, like when you're registering things with HMRC and whatever, you are stuck in the weeds. But remembering like why you're doing this and what is the, what is the end goal and making sure you're driving towards that. Although, perhaps second bit of advice, like don't be doggedly rigid to that. If you're hearing the feedback that things need to be slightly different, then that's fine. I mean, we were pretty dogged for a long time about, you know, this will never be a full routing navigation system it's going to be this this lovely free as the crow flies thing but we changed that because of the feedback we've heard what else i think this isn't my own snippet it's borrowed from someone else and i can't remember who but i think it's a great bit of wisdom for anybody going on an entrepreneurial journey and that is that you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable you're not going to know what you're doing all the time get yourself comfortable with that be happy being in that situation because if you're not, you're just going to be stressed all the time. Just be relaxed being like that. Great stuff. Okay, we're going to end the podcast there. Thanks so much for coming on to the show, Tom. And thanks for tuning in to the Techstart Collective, guys. Thanks very much.